When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We recently released a full-length bonus where we walk through our feelings around the book of Boba Fett finale. Patrons also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast, but even if you aren't ready to subscribe, you can still follow the Patreon for your next Picture Show bonus mini-recommendations and Feedback Friday posts, where we respond to your thoughts and questions. Those are both open to the public, so we hope you'll come engage and ask questions. You can find it all at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here with Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky. Keith Phipps is out getting his hair dyed a startling neon color, so he will not be joining us for this episode. But that's fine, because we want to keep things as fleet and on the go as possible, and a fourth host would just weigh us down when we're on the run. This week, we're talking about two movies built around a jittery energy and keeping things moving. Genevieve, you want to move us along to the next thing here? Sure. First up, we'll talk about Run Lola Run, Tom Tickver's arthouse hit about a woman who has 20 minutes to produce the equivalent of about $60,000 to save her feckless boyfriend from a gangster who's likely to kill him. That film, released in Tickver's native Germany in 1998, was an international breakout in an era where that was much more of a rarity. It's easy to see why it captured people's attention. It's action-driven and easy to follow, but it's also a signature piece, a stylish auteurist experiment in storytelling that's unlikely to be mistaken for anyone else's work. Scott, take the wheel, quick. Ah, okay. (laughs) Steven Soderbergh's new straight-to-streaming movie, Kimmy, is a totally different story. This one, about a tech worker who uncovers a murder and ends up with the murderers on her tail, is also stylish, propulsive, and lean. But it wears its many, many influences on its sleeve, channeling past movies from Rear Window to The Conversation to Rosemary's Baby. Both films center on women fleeing men and urgently trying to achieve a goal on a short deadline, and both run about 90 minutes, with very little time to pause and take stock. Tasha, you're up again. Well, we can't keep up the pace of these films ourselves, so we're going to take a brief break to catch our breath. We'll be right back to jump into Run Lola Run. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Money? Hilf mir, Lola. Ich weiß nicht, was ich machen soll. Was ist passiert? Wie viel hast du? 
Natascha meine ich. 100.000. Was? Die Tasche. 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 Dann helfe ich dir, mir fällt immer was ein. Mann, Lola, wach auf, in 20 Minuten bin ich entweder tot oder ich gehe jetzt da rein und hol mir das Geld. In Denmark in 1995, directors Lars von Trier and Thomas Venterberg founded Dogma 95, a film movement based around a kind of austerity manifesto, where directors pledged to rely on natural light and sound, stick to diegetic music and realism-based plots and characters, and commit to handheld cameras without filters or effects. The manifesto proclaimed that the filmmakers wanted to purify cinema and eliminate distractions for the audience. Quote, my supreme goal is to force the truth out of my characters and setting, unquote, says the text. Quote, I swear to do so by all means available and at the cost of any good taste and aesthetic considerations. Thus, I make my vow of chastity. Just eight months earlier, a group of German filmmakers had created their own group, the X-Film Creative Pool. Their intentions were radically different. Their stated goal was to make splashy international breakout hits by any means necessary. Looking at the work of director Tom Tickfer, who co-founded the group along with Goodbye Lennon director Wolfgang Becker and Gopher Zucker director Danny Levy, it's hard to imagine a less Dogma 95-friendly creature. Tickverse movies aren't all paced like 1998's frantic action feature Run Lola Run, but they do tend to be stylish and heavily constructed, full of flashy visual experiments, dramatic camera work, intrusive demanding scores, and narratives that double back in time, take viewers outside the story to add in extra information, or take in alternate or imaginary realities. All of these things were forbidden under the Dogma 95 manifesto, incidentally. But the funny thing is, both of these collectives were built around the exact same purpose. Both groups were concerned that their national cinema output was losing its energy and quality and needed a shot in the arm. Both groups wanted to ease the loneliness and uncertainty out of filmmaking and give creators some artistic and creative support. Both wanted to boost the visibility and relevance of their national cinema, and both of them succeeded, just in very different ways. For Tickfer, the breakout success was Run Lola Run, which became an international hit. Franca Patente stars as Lola, a German woman who opens the movie with an in-media res phone call from her frantic boyfriend Manny, played by Moritz Blabtrau. Manny has just lost a bag with 100,000 marks that he's supposed to be delivering to the local gangster he's been running errands for. If he isn't on time with the money for a meeting 20 minutes away, he's positive the guy's going to kill him. So Lola has 20 minutes to figure out how to generate a huge pile of cash and get it to Manny before he does something he can't take back. Spoilers ahead, because if you haven't seen the film, the way that story plays out is really something you should experience for yourself. Are you ready? Unlike in the movie itself, you're not going to get a second chance at this choice. Run Lola Run plays out that 20-minute interval three different times and in three different ways. The differences in the branching storylines start with small details that change the timing of Lola's frantic dash across town, but the changes compound and lead to three different choose-your-own-adventure-style endings. All three lean heavily on Lola's determination and her physical drive as she propels herself through the streets of Berlin in a pair of heavy Doc Martens, soundtracked by relentless music, composed and written by Tickfer, and performed by Patente herself. And all three are full of striking touches that the dogma folk would decry as distracting artifice, from animated intervals featuring a stylized version of Lola running, to quick montage asides about the lives and possible futures of the people she encounters, to some big drama around her banker father and his secret lover, among other players. But here's the thing about Run Lola Run. While the Dogma 95 group talked about their stripped-down cinema being in pursuit of truth and realities about being human, Tickfer says exactly the same thing about his experimental intervals in a heavily stylized movie. In 1999, he told Andy Weir, 
No matter how much technical extravaganza abound in my film, I'm always trying to keep very close with the real appearance of people, that you believe what they're doing, and that they act as real human beings and very normal people. In that interview, he talks about visual effects and gimmicks in a way Lars von Trier might immediately recognize, in that he never wants to leave audiences wondering how he did a trick or take them out of the action with it. He feels that he achieves this here by centering the film on one strong character with a single strong goal, someone feeling an instantly recognizable need and struggling to fulfill it. And he talks very seriously about the themes of Run, Lola, Run, about the complexity of choice and responsibility for other people, and about how all of his movies are, in one way or another, exploring time and how people interact with it. In 1999, at least, Tickver called Run, Lola, Run his, quote, most complex and complicated movie and my most twisted and deepest emotional film, unquote. It's hard to say whether that's still true, given what Tickver went on to do, both on his own with stylized films like Perfume, The Story of a Murderer, and The Princess and the Warrior, or with the Wachowski sisters on Cloud Atlas and the Netflix series Sense8. All of these stories get complicated about emotion and about time, reality, and distance. They're all quieter and more stately stories than Run, Lola, Run, but they have the same kind of strong experimental voice and the same confidence that audiences will follow along with something that isn't necessarily linear or reality-bound as long as the emotions remain strong enough. The Dogma 95 experiment was disbanded in 2005 out of a fear that it was producing increasingly formulaic films. But X-Film Creative Pool is still going strong, most recently producing projects like the Netflix rom-com Issy and Aussie and the neo-noir crime series Babylon Berlin. They have more than a half a dozen projects currently in development, quite a bit more on the roster. All of which may speak to the way crowd-pleasing energy and bouncy pop songs are more likely to find a foothold in the international market than vows of cinematic celibacy. But all of this also may just speak to something that Lola finds out herself in her three runs through time and fate. There are a lot of different ways to approach any given problem. And until you commit to a path, there's no telling where it's going to lead. Wenn ich jetzt sterben würde, was würdest du machen? Ich würde ihn nicht sterben lassen. Naja, wenn, wenn ich todkrank wäre, es gibt keine Rettungsmöglichkeit. Ich würde eine finden. Jetzt sag doch mal. Ich liege zum Koma und der Arzt sagt einen Tag noch. Ich würde mit dir ins Meer fahren, dich ins Wasser schmeißen, Schocktherapie. Na ja, gut, wenn ich dann trotzdem tot wäre. Was willst du denn jetzt hören? Jetzt sag doch mal. Ich würde nach Rügen fahren und deine Asche in den Wind streuen. Und dann? Was weiß ich? So eine blöde Frage. Ich weiß es. Okay, guys, this film opens with a, a couple of on-screen quotes. After the game is before the game and uh, a T.S. Eliot quote that says, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploration will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So, what do you what do you make of that? Both the idea of starting this, uh, you know, very very energetic pop movie with a couple of literary aphorisms, and just in terms of what do those statements mean here? I think it's gonna. It means that the movie is gonna circle back <laughs> time. <laughs> is what it means, right? Uh, and I think it kind of s- continues to set that up without the quotes and the little framing bit that opens the film with the uh, with the soccer ball and and all of that kind of business. I mean, you you could you could lose all of that and just get straight into the story. I mean, and this is a movie that is very cut to the bone in, in many respects, but I think there's a little philosophical business that uh, I guess we can discuss whether the film is uh, a deeply philosophical work or whether this is just kind of 
a pretty thin veil covering what is basically a more experiential movie. Yeah, I think I can already predict a certain uh, divide in how Tasha and Scott uh, process this, this <laughs> film, uh, but I will I will wait and see how how that plays out in, in this conversation. But to answer your your question, Tasha, yeah, I think I'll I'll kind of echo what Scott says in terms of I think it's just hanging a lampshade on the idea that like there's perhaps more going on in this movie than its very uh, fleet and uh, trim premise might uh, might promise. And I and I will say that I, I maybe needed that orientation because this was my first time seeing Run Lola Run. It's uh, uh, one that I'm, like many films, ashamed that I uh, hadn't had seen before now. Um, it just, as, as so often the case, kind of hit at the wrong time, and I never really had a reason to catch up with it. But like my perception of the movie, having not seen it for, for so many years, is that it was really a very just straightforward experiential I did not know about the multiple timeline thing. I, I don't know how I missed that. I think just it kind of the film has been kind of absorbed into the pop culture reference pool without that element, you know, like I, I, I know I knew about the soundtrack. I knew about the running. I knew it was like a fast adrenalized movie, but uh, so, for some reason I didn't really ever pick up that there was this whole sort of like determinism butterfly effect element uh, in play here. So I think those opening quotes maybe primed me for that a, a little bit in a way that was maybe necessary or maybe a little pretentious, <laughs> depending on <laughs> how, how, how forgiving you're feeling. <laughs> I mean, knowing Tickfer, I'm I'm perfectly willing to accept it as both of those things at once. I think it's interesting here, particularly given the idea of uh, returning to the beginning and knowing the place for the first time, that to some degree, this movie plays out like something that's become more and more of a uh, subgenre since this movie's come out, which is like the Groundhog Day movie is what pe most people uh, tend to call it. The story where somebody is repeating the same events over and over, which you know, it was a much more innovative idea when Groundhog Day did it. And now there are so many of these stories. But one of the things that tends to come up commonly in them is around the second repetition of a day, the character will start saying things like, I've got the worst deja vu, and this all seems familiar. And around the third time, they're very aware of things and making choices based on fixing choices they made last time. Mm. I don't get any sense in the repetition here that Lola ever twigs to the fact that she's been through this before. But the gun safety. No. Oh, what's that? <laughs> the safety on the gun. She knows to turn the, the, uh, in, the, in the second. Uh, sorry, I, I, I may be like getting us into plot specifics too quickly. I don't want to derail you, Tasha. No, but no you can uh, by all means jump into plot specifics. Was that in a different run? Yeah, because um, in the first run is when she uh, holds up the grocery uh, with Manny and he tells her that you have oh, to take the safety true. off. And then in the second run, she holds up the bank and knows to take the safety off. Oh, good catch. And yeah, yeah that's uh, that's such a little twig compared mm -hmm. to the fact like I'm always expecting like round two or round three for her to not try to go to her father because mm -hmm. she knows how that goes. Yeah. And th that that never happens. She keeps repeating what seems like a a pretty terrible mistake in terms of thinking that he's going to be there for her mm -hmm. or, or going to help her in some way. And after the disappointment of that first run in particular, you would think if, if anything was seeping through from uh, previous experiences, she would know that not only is there no no good help there, 
there's also just like crushing disappointment. Yeah, and I guess there's the the bit too in the I guess be t- between the second and third where she jumps over the kid who trips her down the stairs too. You mean the dog? I thought I thought the kid put oh. out his leg. It is oh, the yeah. kid, but right. I mean the he, dog's he doesn't too trip her the hostile. first time through. Oh, I thought, that's I thought one he, of the I other things. He, he does the second time. Yeah, the first time the dog the... goes after her. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's one of the other things I find so fascinating about these repetitions is it's not that he trips her the first time and the second time she knows to avoid it, which again is how a, a Groundhog Day style movie would work. Everything that throws her off and like ruins her pacing in the second run is because somebody else did something different. Mm. And that's just not something that we normally see in these movies because it takes the choices out of the hands of the protagonist. You know, it becomes less about like what you do is important and more about like the world might not be exactly the same in every single respect. Other people are making choices, too. Mm -hmm. And I I just I find that like a fascinating wrinkle on what's becoming a slightly predictable genre. Yeah, of course, because it because, you know, really, it's about kind of learning from those previous episodes like Groundhog Day is about trying to figure out how to love somebody you know to in a, in a selfless way and, and that, that that's you know once you once he solves that problem that he he breaks out of the loop and there's not really that you know you don't feel like the, this is like some lesson that she's teaching herself it's really more about more of a broader view of of how time operates and how how minor changes can kind of you know alter the fates of of a lot of different people you know, sort of a butterfly flaps its wings type of type of thing. <laughs> also, to your point, Tasha, about like other people's actions being, you know, really important in the differences in the timeline. Like the final run, the the resolution, I guess, to to this problem isn't even the result of what she does. <laughs> it's it's what Manny, like Manny, is the one who who, or well, with the assistance of the the blind woman who kind of points him toward the homeless man who who took the the bag of cash and allows Manny to kind of hunt him down. And obviously, there's like another sort of butterfly effect element in play there in terms of Manny being able to catch him. But like the actual action that resolves the central problem of the movie is not the one that Lola takes like it's like a bonus in the end like she now she had now they have this bag of casino winnings on top of their problem being solved so as as a resolution I found that to be very interesting a little bonus piece of trivia for you on that by the way the the blind woman that gives Manny the phone card uh is the actor's mother (laughs) oh that's sweet Nice. I think so too. You know, she she makes his day and uh, makes his his ongoing life possible. <laughs> but yeah, there are there are a bunch of uh, fun little trivia things in this movie. I think that one and my other favorite one is uh, Tickver talked about. So in in that opening sequence after the quotes, we get the camera wandering through a kind of like blurred out gray yellow crowd. Uh, while like narration talks about like causality and time and chance. And then we keep finding characters from the movie who we, we don't know who they are yet amid the crowd and they'll say something and then the camera will move on. And then eventually the camera pulls out and up and away and the huge crowd of people resolves into letters uh, that spell out the, the title of the film. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that, I, I just assumed it was a digital effect. Apparently it isn't. 
he couldn't get the the 50,000 people he would have needed to pull it all together. So instead, he got, I believe, 500 people. And he had them individually form each one of those letters uh, over the course of a day of shooting. And then he like digitally assembled all of it together. But he did actually make all of those letters out of people in that opening. Good for him. <laughs> I know, right? It, like, it makes a difference. Eat it, Lars von Trier. This is a physical. This is a physical realm. This is this film takes place in. This is you know you, you, you it's good, except for the cartoons. And yeah, the, I was say except for the, the animation seg- segment, which I you know I I respect its application here, and I, I especially think it may have been a, a choice born equally of uh, frugalness and uh, artistic intent, but. Mm. It's really not very nice to look at. <laughs> I don't. I, I well, didn't find it. Yeah, and it's just a, another layer layer of cleverness. Because I mean, I think that we can say without insulting Tickford too much that this is this film sh- is kind of a show offy movie. You know, this is <laughs> like somebody. This is a young director trying to make a splash. You know, it, it feels uh, calculated to some extent and and in, in a commercial way. Again. Not, not, I don't mean that entirely as an insult either, but but it is really, you know, about showing off. And and, and I think I was thinking when when uh, you know the keynote was talking about Dogman in '95 and just kind of stuff that was in the air uh, internationally when this film came out. I was reminded of a couple of other inputs to it that are kind of worth mentioning. One one is I think the the whole everything that was happening in France with the cinema du look and with with Luc Besson and all of that stuff was kind of getting rolling and France was bec- suddenly becoming a a hub for commercial cinema in Europe right uh, things that would cross over quite easily to international and American audiences and and uh, and we'd seen several films make that happen at that point and then the other th- part of it is the philosophical part I suppose is is Christoph Kieslowski uh, particularly a film like Blind Chance, you know, or any of his films, really, that, just, that where preoccupation is with coincidence, with fate, uh, with the, with these kind of incredible circumstances, bits of, bits of timing where things kind of come together. So it's, it's it's almost like those those are the two kind of forces pulling at it at the same time of this quite arty filmmaker Christoph Kieslowski, but also this impulse among you know other European countries, particularly France, to make movies that weren't just going to show in France that we're going to show everywhere. And you can see that, I think that imprinted quite strongly on, on the film and, and make it made to, in a way that feel that, that is, in my opinion, not always comfortable because I do think that the film is more still just gets me more viscerally than, than, than intellectually. Uh, but I, but I was kind of excited to do this episode so I could hear the, the intellectual part. Cause we kind of do get into those weeds a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and, may, and maybe there's more to it. Maybe there's more to it than I think. So, well, okay, so here's where I uh, raise a question that I think gets at both sides uh, of that dichotomy. Like, you know, as we've already said multiple times, this is an admirably, like, tight film, you know, like, it's 80 minutes, like, 80 minute films, we love them. At the same time, am I alone in feeling like I kind of want another repetition or two to to play out here? Like, I, I kind of feel that three while being a very good number in and of itself for storytelling purposes and otherwise like I, I feel like the again as someone coming into this not really knowing the, the timeline shenanigans that were that were going to happen I feel like by the time I like caught on to what the movie was doing I didn't have enough time to like appreciate it and sit with it and like see it play out in enough ways 
and I'm thinking in particular about sort of the little snapshot montages we get of the various people that she bumps into or, or, mm-hmm. or, or runs past, you know, and like that's that's a cool element here. And it's definitely like really tied to the the themes that Tickver is is uh, interested in. But I feel like like one repetition isn't always necessarily enough or or maybe it's just that I find it interesting enough that I want to see more. I'm curious how you two feel about that. Should this be longer? Should this movie be longer? <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, I'm going to punt to Tickfer on that one. Uh, one of the one of the interviews that I read with him about making this movie, he specifically addressed like his feeling that it had to be this short because something operating at this speed is exhausting to people mm-hmm. and that there's anything longer than this would just wear people down and lose the sense of lightness and the, and the sense of energy as people were wore down. And, you know, I'm often a more is more kind of person with cinema, but I, I feel like three is the perfect number here. I, I feel like it just, you know, it has, it has a cult significance. It has so much balance in terms of, you know, here's the ending where she dies. Here's the ending where he dies. Here's the happily ever after ending. Like, you could definitely come up with a lot of variants on that. But I think maybe one of the joys of the film is that this gives you all the tools you need to make your own run and Mm. see how things might have differed if you want. But it doesn't have to exhaust all the possibilities. I kind of love the fact that there isn't a whole lot of explanation. You know, the, the boss in the car who gets into a very minor accident or a very major accident or no accident based entirely on Lola's timing, like his future and his choices are heavily affected by what she does. But a lot of the people she runs into along the way, like the difference between the woman with the baby gets in trouble with uh, social services, gets her child taken away and steals a stranger's baby versus she wins the lottery and ends up rich. None of that has anything to do with her interaction with Lola. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of an indication that you know, life is maybe uh, a little random and chaotic and there are a lot of ways it could go. And I think once you realize that sticking in more options and like more branches would just be, would just feel arbitrary. I, I think that this movie does a really good job at getting at the idea of, you know, like everything is subject to so many chaos butterflies flapping. Everything could go in so many ways. Hey, here are just some of them. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say what I always say, which is that Tasha's right on this. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I, I really Cut do. Fe- I do feel like three is is. I think it's kind of perfect at the length it is, and, and the length and the energy and the sustained attention that it evokes. I guess is is the uh, the primary strength of the film, and so to add on to that, I think is a is a dangerous proposition, particularly since we are really seeing. A loop here we're not it's not like groundhog day where we're getting like variations and montages and and a lot of different looks we are we are really starting from the same starting point and ending the same finishing point and seeing the same elements again and again and again and so i think to you would have to kind of dramatically change the film in order to justify the fatigue of kind of going back to that same starting point and going forward to the same place over and over again. I have to say I'm not, I get the point, I suppose, of the of of the little mini stories that we kind of get, the little flashbulb stories that we get with each of the people that she encounters and how those change. 
Um, but I think that's maybe a point where where I the philosophical girding of this film is is a little bit on the thin side uh as far as i'm concerned i don't feel i feel like it's it's kind of a somewhat facile point for him to be to be making um and i in 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 beyond that i i don't think it's that clever yeah i I kind of was hoping for you'd kind of want something you know it tilts a little bit at whimsy and something crazy or ridiculous at times like winning the lottery or you know or the opposite of that or, or or you know destitution and death but again that's definitely a case where you get the point right away you know it well, really yeah. just takes that second it really just takes that second repetition to say oh, okay just a tiny little flap of that butterfly's wing and everybody's going in a different direction so okay yeah and that's that's a good point to make because i think maybe as i'm listening to you to talk i think maybe what i'm responding to in this desire to like see more of you know repetitions or whatever is maybe more just to like see more cleverness in those moments because you're right i think that those snapshot moments the idea of them is clever but i feel like what actually plays out in them is very kind of like you said kind of pat and straightforward so i feel like it's like i can see the whole where a more interesting one of those goes or where a more unexpected one of those goes and i kind of am wishing we got that but at the same time, like maybe that is ultimately just kind of a, a distraction. Really, what I want is more versions of the uh, giant plate glass uh, being walked across <laughs> yes. the crosswalk. I just want to I want to see what else can be done with that. <laughs> because the ambulance hits it, but it doesn't break. It just bounces yeah, into exactly. a giant pile of like watermelon crates and boxes full of chickens yeah. that is, just happens to be on the other side of the street. Exactly. Yeah. I would say that the, the 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 film is meticulously planned and thinly scripted is kind of where the where I would think I think about it like it's been plotted out and mapped out and it feels like it's been storyboarded to death but I wanted I I felt like at those opportunities particularly with the scenes involving the father and and his mistress like at those opportunities I would want a little bit more for on a screenwriting level to kind of bring those scenes to life and not make them feel like they're just cogs in in the film's larger machinery yeah i i don't know i I agree with you 100 percent that the little life snippets that we get out of people are not clever they're not deep and they don't speak to the film's themes in a a giant resonant way but i kind of don't feel like they need to i think they're just fun i i think that they're mostly comic and the extremity of the directions that they go in is part of the the comedy you know that the little glimpse into the woman at the bank who starts dating one of her co-workers and then the next thing you know they're like in s&m get-ups uh and and playing out a kink routine that's it that's comedy you know it's it's not about <laughs> it's much better uh, than, than her previous one which i believe was her <laughs> being paralyzed and then killing herself <laughs> yeah exactly but uh, you know the Hilarious. the point there <laughs> Obviously, that the line between one of those things and the other, you know, happy, uh, kinky rubber suit sex life versus in a wheelchair and paralyzed is a very thin line. That point is facile. Um, that that point is, uh, you know, as as Genevieve said, deterministic. There there is sort of a feeling of like how much do your choices really matter? But at the same time, it's meant to be it's meant to be laughing at i think the vagaries of life like it's not meant to be dealing with these things on a a heavy thoughtful philosophical level so much as saying like 
you know, que sera, sera, like there, but for the grace of a woman with really badly dyed red hair running by, go I. <laughs> and I just, I don't need, I don't think it needs to be more than it is. I, I think the execution of it with the uh, photography sounds, just the snap, 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 and and very quickly changing uh, photographs just kind of gives you the indication that, uh, yeah, this is, this is just a playful thought experiment essentially like uh, what if what if this person's road went in this direction and i'm just not sure it needs to be more than that yeah but i also want to push back by pointing out that some of them are really really bleak <laughs> like like i'm oh, sure you know and i i think like maybe that bleakness uh indicates some depth that isn't there but i see what you mean about it functioning as comedy like on a structural level so I will say this. There was a film on Netflix a couple years ago that I reviewed called Love Wedding Repeat that was <laughs> treated as much more like this than like a, a repeated day film. And it's set at a wedding where a whole bunch of stuff happens and people interact in a certain way. And it's a rom-com where two people are clearly destined to end up together. And because of things that happen, they don't end up together. And then we get a do-over where we see basically the seating chart cards at the table where a lot of our main characters are sitting are swapped around by a bunch of rambunctious children and everybody ends up sitting next to somebody else. And then we see how that plays out and the couple does end up together. And that movie sat poorly with me for a number of reasons, one of which was I just didn't think the comedy of it was very good. Another of which was the two rom-com leads were just complete dish rags who like literally let it, anything and everything get in the way of their just speaking to each other. But I think ultimately it just feels like an unsatisfying movie because it presents like this completely arbitrary twist of fate as the reason two people got together. And that's not really what we want out of our rom-coms. You know, we, we want some compelling reason why people end up together or why people end up in love or why people are good for each other. And the movie just kind of presents it as like an unsatisfying accident of fate, but then also wants you to be emotionally invested. And I feel like maybe some of the reactions that you guys are having here is from some of that sense of you want there to be more to life than just completely arbitrary happenstance, like making or destroying a life at any given moment. Um, I, well, I think the difference would would be again. I haven't seen this uh, Netflix film you're referencing. I have not caught up with that one yet. Um, but, Rush but the, out to do it by all means, Scott. Yes, what are you waiting for? Thing that you don't like. Um, that's on Netflix. I will. I will give it a shot. But like, uh, but I would say you know that I feel invested in Lola, especially engaged by her, and certainly engaged by the film, the film's technique, and in in you know kind of on edge. It works for me on that front and it can and, that, and that, that can be enough and it is enough this is a film i actually like i don't want to give the impression that i don't i think we need to spend some time talking about lola and manny as characters <laughs> uh, yeah there's absolutely a lot that we've already covered that we could stand to dig into in a little more depth and uh, also we definitely need to talk about like the lola manny relationship what who they are as characters and what they mean to each other but i think instead we're just gonna stop here <laughs> and then take a break and then go back to the top of the conversation and do it all again but in a completely different way uh although the completely different way will be governed by strange and arbitrary rules that we're not going to discuss in any way uh you can look forward to that happening after this break
so to bring us kind of back to not quite the top, uh, as I promised, because I, I totally lied. Um, somebody just brushed by me and completely changed that uh, line of fate to the one that we're we're going to engage in now. I do want to go back to that idea of uh, the French cinema to look mm-hmm. influencing this movie. And just when I ran across the whole idea of the, the Aux film pool and realized how closely it aligned with dogma in time, I kind of wondered, like, it doesn't feel like I certainly don't think that dogma was responding to the formation of this German collective. And I wondered what they were if there was something they were both responding to. And, and that just puts in the extra piece that I needed, Scott. Yeah, so no, I mean, I, I, but I, I would say it would be it would be almost re- rejecting the type, the very commercialization of of European cinema that was happening. And also for for von Trier, it was just a grand experiment that he could conduct. Uh, if you look at the, uh, that film, The Five Obstructions, when he which is a wonderful film that where he puts he he makes this uh, director of a, a short film basically make it again and again under a lot of different rules that he sets. I mean, that's kind of what Dogma 95 is, is in a nutshell. The, the goal, you know, may be a more stripped down form of cinema without kind of a, a lot of the artifice that, that we're seeing sneaking in the movies. I mean, keep in mind, this is, this is also, you know, an early period for, a lot of digital effects to kind of come into movies and and effects that Von Trier himself had um, utilized in in, uh, Zentropa, uh, which he'd done, I guess, in what, the late 80s, early 90s? I can't remember the date on that. But in any case, uh, I think the early 90s, any case, all that was in the air. And I think there was, this was just kind of like, okay, let's just tack against that one. And then two, let me, Lars Von Trier, play the sadistic, you know, maestro here and and put through people through the paces and if we and if we have them play by these rules what's going to result what's what, what a movie's going to look like and they never look better than the first one in my opinion a celebration but but it was an interesting a celebration is a big stand it was an it was a, an interesting experiment and then you, you kind of move beyond it but i think i think the idea was to give cinema a an aaron Rodgers style cleanse <laughs> like a nice like a nice seven day Wow, way to update us in time there, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the funny thing in all of this is you're bringing up these specific examples. My my point was pretty simply that it kind of feels like the German collective here and uh, the Danish collective happening about the same time chose opposite sides on this this debate you know france is doing this uh very stylish impactful kind of uh international cinema thing and uh germany's like okay we're all in but double and uh, denmark's like exactly the opposite of that and also none of your none of your movie ideas here but you bring up the five obstructions i i think it's a funny example to bring up here, since that is basically Lars von Trier telling the same story five ways yeah. and in different iterations, like cycling back to the top. Forcing someone else to tell the same story well, sure. five different ways. Yeah. But the other thing about that is the movie that he's remaking is a, a 60s classic called uh, The Perfect Man. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking of The Perfect Man during the intro to Run Lola Run. That again, that talking about that 
sequence where the camera is like wandering through the crowd with the, the whispery voice overhead, like talking about fate and time and circumstance and chance. And then we zoom in on individual people who speak to the camera in very like artificial and, and conscious ways. I kept thinking of that short in particular and the rhythms of it. And I, I have no idea if it was an influence, if it was in any way on Tickver's mind. But it is sort of a strange coincidence that you'd bring that in here. I think the other thing, the other kind of obvious movie that we haven't mentioned yet that would have influenced this film quite a bit is is Train Spotting. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Apparently, these these two movies were uh, shown back to back at some film festivals. Also, I kept thinking of the Train Spotting soundtrack, which I was addicted to when that movie came mm -hmm. out. Listening to the soundtrack here and. So in one of the interviews that I read, uh, somebody asked about Underworld, the group uh, which has at least one song on the Transpotting soundtrack, and how familiar Tickfer was with Underworld. And he admitted that a bunch of this uh, movie was originally scored to Underworld. Like they used that to set. He literally talks about this film in like EDM terms of beats per minute, mm -hmm. and they he found different uh, Underworld songs with different beats per minute rate and was trying to figure out how to time the movie, whether it was going to be 120 BPM or 140 BPM. I mean, that, that's kind of what's great about it. I mean, that, that, I mean, it really just, I love the experience of watching this movie. I, I, my only problem is I, maybe I don't come away with it thinking, wow, this has just been a profound philosophical experience I've just had. Uh, you know, I, I think that some of the ideas that he is playing with here you know, were, have been articulated better elsewhere. But I also think like the manner in which he's conceived this film makes it hard to engage with these themes in the way that somebody like Kieslowski might've. Maybe, but, so but I mean, appreciate just about like the feel of this movie. Yeah. This movie does feel like a sugar rush, like pop version of double life of Veronique in a way, but at the same time, it, you know, it's, it's not trying to explore those themes in the same way. Like it's trying to filter those themes through essentially a, uh, like a, a young gangsters in love pop story, which brings us back to that question of Lola and Manny and how we feel about them as characters and how we feel about their relationship. Because that is the center of this movie. Like, so we're going to talk two... about this movie again. Sorry, I'm just laughing to myself of how, I, how many other movies are you two going to talk about? Genevieve's our cunning plan. back on track person. I had a cunning plan all I think, along. I think all of our and it was going to lead back cyclically to this point where we see the beginning and realize that it is also all the our, ending. All of our podcasts would just be nothing but digressions that would just, we wouldn't know. It would, they would just be starting points, these movies, unless Genevieve were, were, was uh, in charge. No, no, no. Hey, I, hey, I'm the one were, that brought it back around. Genevieve just dissed me yeah. for bringing it back around like Jimmy, what way do you have to sidetrack is genevieve are we going to talk about this film genevieve or are we going to talk about your uh, annoyance that are not talking about this film no i mean i've i've just been wanting to get back to talking about lola and, and manny in particular because i think for me anyway like I definitely agree with what's being said uh, about, you know, the way this film like sweeps you away, but it does feel a little artificial to me. Like it's all done through things like the music and the, the style more than the character, like the stakes uh, as they apply to the, the characters, like their relationship, what's going on with, with Manny, like the very thing they need to do. Like, it's not that they're 
unlikable characters. I do think they are both kind of unlikable um, to, to varying degrees. That's that's not really the issue because I don't have a problem with unlikable protagonists. But I think I, I just had a little trouble connecting to sort of the heart of what is making Lola run, <laughs> you know? Um, and it still worked because the film has all these other elements that kind of keep you on its wavelength, but just on kind of a character relationship level, it never really felt like it had solid grounding there. It did for me, but not until the second repetition at the end when Manny dies. When Lola dies, we get a an interval. Everything's mm-hmm. like red lit and we get the two of them in bed together. They're you know, we see them from the neck up, but the intimation is that they're naked, possibly just after lovemaking or, you know, just like lying around together as couples do. And she's asking some very insecure questions about their relationship and fear in the future. And it just felt a little like, OK, I've seen this in a thousand movies, whatever. But then we go back into the experience and we get 20 more minutes of the story. And then we have another one of those intervals. And this time it's Manny that's asking the the questions, the concerned questions about what if, what if I died? What would you do if I died? And pushing and pushing and pushing, trying to come up with circumstances under which he dies and she starts dating somebody else. And that for me kind of gave us a neat little bookend on the the previous experience and gave us a portrait of like each of them caring for the other and protecting the other and like emotionally reassuring and supporting the other during the other's like you know, long, dark night of the soul, the kind of feelings that you sometimes have at two or three in the morning, if you're the kind of person that's awake at two or three in the morning, where you, you know, worry about things that you might not worry about during the uh, the bright light of day. And it was that second one, where she's just very calmly telling him like, oh, you know, if, uh, if a doctor told you you had three days to live, I would kick you into the sea. So it would it would jumpstart your heart. Like, she's being a little silly. But she's also diverting her lover away from this like very dark, depressive place that he's uh, gone to and reassuring him that he she's going to be there for him. And I found that that interval just very affectionate and very believable and, and real and grounded in a, a, a way that might almost be dogma if, uh, you know, the, if the lights didn't have a, a, a cursed filter on them. Yeah, it's well lit for sure. Um, I, I, I would say what I, I guess I appreciated about Manny in particular is that someone like Manny, if you, if you want to go back to the, the, the French films that we were talking about, he would be, he, uh, there are like a dozen Mannies in every single Luc Besson production. They're just henchmen, right? <laughs> who, get, who usually get shot up by their boss. Maybe they survive, but you never really know who they are. And I and I think in the uh, if we don't have those interludes, if we don't have those that if we don't have that the, those this, those scenes of them whatever uh, postcoital scenes I suppose, I don't think he becomes something else. He becomes somebody whose personality, whose choices are all that interesting or consequential or, or to us as as uh, and then also to and then we also don't get a sense of not why Lola is necessarily devoted to him, but but just like. The extent to which he is, you know, the, the, you know that 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 we start to understand as well, and uh, kind of kind of appreciate, even though this is this is somebody who you would normally dismiss as, you know, kind of a criminal scumbag <laughs> type, <laughs> uh, you know, as somebody who is uh, who she appreciates enough to lay absolutely everything on the line for. I mean, don't you get that sense of dedication in the first arc, though? Like when he storms into the grocery store to rob it. 
she storms in after him mm-hmm. and attacks a security guard and, and picks up a gun. Like it just doesn't occur to her to to run away or to abandon him. He's made a very bad choice that is obviously not going to lead anywhere good. And she doesn't want him to make that choice. She's disappointed that he didn't trust her and didn't wait for her. But then she's all in with him. Like she goes full Bonnie and Clyde with it. And, you know, that may be a very romantic, cinematic version of of young love in particular. Like the reckless, you're throwing your life away. So it's my responsibility to throw my life right after it. Hmm. But, you know, it does still speak to a, a certain idea of cinematic love, I yeah. think. They conform to archetype. Yeah, I think maybe that's what I'm just resisting is the I'm going to throw myself after this dumbass, uh, you know, (laughs) that I've that I've been dating for a year. And I guess like to return to those interludes, like, yes, I get it. I think they just didn't hit that way for me. Like it just I I didn't get like sincerity or care or affection out of those. I got kind of like too dummies who don't really know how to express themselves but that was just like this one viewing so i might feel differently if i if i saw it again but i did just like kind of have i I think like the their initial phone conversation just like really kind of puts like starts off on the, the wrong foot maybe intentionally so but i think like there's it's a long walk to come back from that initial like conversation about them both just like letting each other down <laughs> in in big ways uh and him berating her for not picking him up because her mopipe got stolen i don't know it's just like he like starts he comes roaring out of the gate as as a dick and i guess maybe the film does the work to kind of illuminate something there but i didn't really see it through the the red filter i don't think he <laughs> ever stops being a dumbass yeah. uh, i i would say he doesn't start off the film as a jerk so much as he starts off the film as like a, a hapless whiner mm-hmm. but well, but genevieve in big trouble uh, like, i mean he's definitely he, he's 20 minutes away from a pretty likely uh death Sure, but like this is the kind of thing that happens in in cinema a lot, and you don't get a whole lot of people whining about it. Well, I mean, I don't know. I I wouldn't feel great about it if I'm if I'm Manny, Uh, and I'm I'm a hundred grand short. I'm definitely picturing Scott in Miller's Crossing here, just like you know, begging, (laughs) "Look at me, a hot! Look at me, a hot!" At the person pointing the gun at him. Uh, Yeah, but I I just I want to loop back to like I don't know what alternate universe take we're in right now. Where Scott and I are vehemently agreeing about a movie and Genevieve is saying, eh, the emotional content here doesn't work for me and I don't feel it. This is all sentimental and sticky and I, it just doesn't work for me. I, I emotionally shut out what this no, movie is trying to do no. about love. I mean, I don't dislike this movie. I think I have maybe not been able to spend enough time with this movie to kind of a- appreciate no, I don't want to say that. Like my, no, you my, spent my, plenty of time. Yeah, yeah. It's um, eighty minutes. minutes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to apologize for my reaction, which was again mostly positive. But I did kind of find myself, it, if we're going to stick with the the central running metaphor, like there just there were a lot of little stumbles, you know, <laughs> like yeah. like little little hitch in in the gate. I mean, uh, yeah. So I think that is, I, I may be a little hung up on those because that's 
what we do on this podcast. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to like oversell the extent to which they ruin the movie for me. Okay. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. Like one of the big themes in this movie is infidelity. Uh, her dad is cheating on her mom. Her mom is contemplating cheating on her dad. Her dad's lover, who he's cheating on mom with, is cheating on him and has gotten pregnant with somebody else's child that somebody else has probably rejected her. There's just there's a lot of emphasis here on other people having unsatisfying and uh, not particularly committed relationships. Do you think that that's meant to, I, I guess, attach us more to the idea of Lola and Manny as a couple? Because even if they're both dumbasses, they at least have each other's back. Well, it's also it, it also kind of a, the, the difference, too, between those two couples is about conventionality too versus you know nonconformists you know you, you, i mean this this is a everything involving the father and this affair that he's having is is um you know almost a failing of a conventional life of a conventional type of life and uh and here you have uh lola with her her wild hair and she's going she's she's dating this outlaw and they ha- they they share a love that that's uh real and and exciting and and passionate and and you know so so i think that's kind of where the contrast comes in and it, and it, and it so you know i guess somewhat upends our expectations or our thoughts about how what, what a healthy relationship or what a healthy person looks like because we can kind of di- we can kind of dig these uh fringe dwellers a little bit more I can certainly accept that, um, but I, I do want to ask Tasha uh, where Manny has Lola's back in this, because it, like like genuinely asking, because you uh, <laughs> seem to have a better handle on their relationship than, than than I do. Like obviously, Lola storming into the grocery store is a you know a, a big display of her. Well, and the whole premise of the movie is her having his back, but but where does he reciprocate that to her? I mean, it's definitely not as strong of a theme. Mm-hmm. Um, his reassurance of her in the the first interlude reads a lot less as a devotion and maybe a little more as uh, like, okay, baby, but if you would shut up, we could both go to sleep. Yeah. Like that may be the tone of it a little bit. I don't know that I get a deep devotion out of him exactly. I think they're on each other's level in a a very natural born killers kind of way. Like you don't necessarily like root for these people to get everything they want out of life, but they, they match each other essentially. Like she sees something in him that's worth supporting, even if he is a kind of a feckless dumbass. I don't know. Like I suppose I root for him in the moment, (laughs) in the moment where he's handing his gun to the bum with the, idea that the guy may just shoot him (laughs) there is just sort of a sense of like he's at least trying to be a good guy like he's at least trying to be ethical he's at least trying to be empathetic and and to help other people maybe he doesn't have lola's back as much as he should maybe he isn't as uh you know good with doing things right (laughs) in the world as he should be Maybe he's not rootable exactly, but, you know, he's he's trying. I feel a sense of like making an effort there that is often not the case for like, I mean, like look at the boys in train spotting, for instance. I love that movie to death. I could not enjoy it more. But like there's nobody in that movie that's trying to improve themselves, really, or make the world a better place or help anyone else, really. And this is just, this still is ultimately a movie about her and what she can do. She can run. 
And, then and what she also, wants, and, and how she gets which is not those run. are not running shoes at all. <laughs> yeah, apparently she uh, Tickford told her like in a lot of the shots we wouldn't see her feet, and she could just wear running shoes. But <laughs> she felt that it it just it the sound was different and the the weight was different. Her body movement was different, so she just learned to run all over the place in Doc Martens. Like you do. I wear, I wear those shoes. Those are my shoes. I, they, you can you can't run very well on them. But, no, <laughs> but she's in better shape than me, so she's younger. Oh, she's, they're probably like really broken in. Once 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 you soften them up a bit, I guess. Oh, maybe they definitely you could soften run up for sure. Yeah. I, I, if they're new, Doc Martens, she'd be in big trouble. Yeah, God, you guys, we're we gonna talk about the movie, or are we just gonna talk about shoes? Oh snap! <laughs> See, I'm bringing it back around in a great big circle. Uh, before we leave this this topic and this movie, it would be remiss if we did not address the fact that Lola apparently has supernatural powers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is an aspect of the movie. So there there are a lot of different moving parts here as we addressed. You know, there's there's the aphorisms at the beginning. There's the this abstract experimental uh, voiceover and wandering aspect. There's the animation. There are the little asides into people's lives. There are the cyclic, you know, repeated storytelling things. All of these elements. I'm just kind of willing to roll with pretty much in this movie but the fact that she has supernatural powers when she screams i can only take that on a symbolic level i guess i feel that maybe what tickfer is saying here is just you know there is a power in extreme determination in in ferocity and on a very cinematic level in a very specific kind of like female devotion to to a man like female devotion to love in particular it's also but just that said cool i mean i think is this it? is kind of like that's a thing i mean like there, there is again that show-offy thing of just like ah that's something cool that she screams in this in shatters glass like that it just it <laughs> of all of these random elements in the film it's the one that works for me least the uh, yeah, idea even if we were to accept that her scream shatters glass, I don't know how to explain the fact that her scream makes a, a ball drop into the right pocket of a roulette wheel. Oh, right. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's it's like Splash. <laughs> if you, she wants to be like this one. She wants, maybe she's a mermaid. Maybe that's something we'd find out in the sequel. In, in iteration 14. By the way, Tickfer has, this is my last trivia point, I swear. Tickfer has said he is cool with this movie, like never being remade, never being reproduced, never being sequelized. But if he was going to do a sequel, it would be about the uh, the homeless guy yep. with the, who now has a gun For or a sure. bike. Yeah, it has to be, right? But I mean, are there any elements in all of this that, that don't work for you? Like given what a, like a sack of different moving parts this is that that fit together in odd jangly ways are there things like like the scream uh for me that just don't work for you i, I mean at the beginning does the, the the opening doesn't work very well for me i just think i think when the film is is trying to wax philosophical it gets into trouble and also and i, and I think again like i said the the, the scripting is just not as it doesn't punch as much as the visual part of it like like all of the stuff between her father and the and his mistress it just felt like we were like breaking in on like a soap opera that it wasn't mm -hmm. it wasn't real it it felt just it it felt just kind of under imagined and i and i kept thinking throughout the movie you know just a lot of little touches too i just i was thinking like what if edgar wright had made this movie like edgar wright like there would be there's such a more clever movie in the small details 
here in the small details of just like little slight sleight of hand visual touches you know the the, the the it would have popped in a way that this film doesn't uh, the film pops in certain ways and doesn't in every way i mean i think it's a good again solid movie but uh, but but and that was my reaction i think when it came out i don't uh, you know we don't we don't really do the whole what how does it play now like it did in when it came out but i you know i saw it in a theater when it came out and and it played exactly the same way (laughs) then it's now there's no difference it kind of is what it is and it almost reminds me a little bit too of a movie like el mariachi and that it's just like okay we we i'm gonna i'm gonna show what i i'm gonna show i'm gonna show off i'm coming from a place in the world that you don't expect you know a movie like this to come from you know you don't expect any movies to come from and I'm going to show you what I can do. And um, he did, he did it. He succeeded because uh, the, the film was a smash, and it was it's super entertaining. Yeah, it's and he's gone on to a, a relatively celebrated career of like very distinctive and interesting films. I would say. Yeah, it's kind of like a blunt instrument of, of, of a film. And to Scott's point, I think probably, and to the point I made earlier, like I think probably my my biggest issue is sort of like the the lack of care or the lack of cleverness in some of the details you know or, or the, the 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 missed opportunity maybe i i guess that that i can can see there and i do think thinking of it as a, a blunt inter- instrument also uh kind of applies to the supernatural scream element which doesn't really have any sort of meaning or it's not a payoff there's not like there doesn't seem to be anything really deeper there it's just sound and fury you know in a movie that is kind of that's its its stock and trade and like that is notable and impressive in and of itself like there's lots of different ways to make a film and this film succeeds at, at what it's doing but i think it also does have enough quote-unquote random elements in play that it's hard not to look at those elements and be like what could this have been in you know if 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 there was a little more attention or, or thought put into this well, honestly, I would continue to agree with you there. I don't know that this is a particularly deep movie in spite of Techver's career-long big themes about uh, time and, and chance and fate. But some of those elements are things that we are going to get into a little further when we bring this into conversation with Kimmy. I think in particular, we haven't really talked much about the soundtrack at all, and we're kind of holding off on that one to to bring it into conversation. So there's a lot more, I think, to be said about Run Lola Run, and I'm certainly curious to know what our listeners think in terms of where this film falls on the balance between trying to do something deep and uh, trying to give people like a big slab of of pop cotton candy uh, to enjoy this kind of uh, kind of both elements here. And I'm, I'm curious what everybody thinks dominates. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that or anything else in the world of film that you'd like to ask us about. You can email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share your responses with us and with other listeners. We might feature you on the Patreon. We might sit down and write out an answer to your question. We'll be back in a moment with a preview of our next episode. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we're going to compare Run, Lola, Run with a film that it resembles in a lot of different ways, even though it feels like it's taking its story down a very different path. That's Steven Soderbergh's action thriller Kimmy, starring Zoe Kravitz as a different, resourceful, bright-haired speedster on the run. You can look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and for extra content, including letters from other listeners and responses from the staff, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. We're at nextpictureshow.net and we're on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. 
Until next week, please keep an eye on all your personal belongings. The next picture show is not responsible for packages left behind on any of our podcasts. I don't believe there's nothing left